Hello, everybody. This is Sam Smucker, and I'm here with Jonathan Kassam. Hey, everyone. We uh, Welcome to the Smash Up Derby. Uh, this is uh, our podcast on working class politics and working class life. And Jonathan and I thought we'd start the, today's show off with a little bit of a background discussion about the history of the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers Union. And that's because our guest today is Terry Davis, who's a longtime organizer for that union. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about the history of the UE here, because this whole program is going to be about, uh, a, un- about a group of workers organizing their shop uh, to leave one wor- electrical workers union and join the United Electrical Workers Union. So the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers Union, uh, a union you're going to re- hear us refer to by UE and also the United Electrical Workers Union, is a very progressive, democratic, militant union. It's the kind of union that uh, workers really love and bosses really hate. And that's the union that Terry goes to work for eventually, and that comes in at the end of the story and uh, assists the uh, employees. Jonathan, you want to give the history of the UE? So the you know the UE was uh, it, it's not actually an electricians union, although there are uh, electricians that are in it. Um, but it gets its name because it was the union formed in the 1930s by people who worked in electrical manufacturing plants uh, and radio manufacturing plants when they used to manufacture radios in America and and also machine tools. Those are the three names: United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America. After World War II, um, after participating in um, a sort of national strikes against the, the electrical industry, uh, the UE was, uh, uh, was really targeted by not only the companies but also the government to attack the union and, and replace it actually with a different union in many places. There was, uh, there was another union set up called the IUE uh, that was set up to destroy UE in the, in the electrical manufacturing industries. Other unions like the like the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the the actual electricians union, um, or the auto workers or other unions, sort of took advantage of this to um, to try to uh, take shops away from the UE. And the UE went from about six hundred thousand members right after the war to uh, really down to about a hundred thousand, I think, during the fifty at the end of the fifties yeah. or so. At the end of the fifties, it was about a hundred thousand, little little less than a hundred thousand actually. So there was a, a process to really to really undermine and destroy the UE, but the UE survived and it was, remained an independent union. And by the time that Terry is telling her story in the 70s, UE is st- still at that time very much an industrial union. They, the UE actually really rebuilt in the in the 60s. Uh, I believe actually had close to a quarter of a million members by the end of the 70s. So yeah, so this would have been during a time of of growth then, even for the UE. She's going to work in a place called Stuart Warner. It's in Chicago. That factory had been in the UE in, in the 30s or 40s, had left the UE and gone to the IBEW, the other union. And now in the 70s, Terry's telling the story about it coming back into the UE. Right. And one of the things that Terry describes is when part of the way that the attack on the UE happened was the government passed a law called Taft-Hartley that restricted unions in lots of ways. And one of the ways that it did is it, it forced unions to uh, sign affidavits that, uh, or forced union officers to sign affidavits to saying that they were not and never had been members of the Communist Party. And 
the UE took the position that it's none of the government's business uh, what the politics of our members are, whether they're members of the Communist Party or members of the John Birch Society or, or anything. Um, it's not the government's business. And so and they took this very principled stance of not signing these affidavits. And well, what that meant was the government would conduct elections and the UE couldn't be on the ballot. And so workers would, uh, you know, have uh, would have a uh, often have a ballot that said something like uh, IBEW or no union. And in order for the UE to keep the shop, it would have to convince a majority of the workers. They would have to first convince a majority of the workers to vote for no union, and then, you know, have a strong enough organization to compel boss to keep bargaining with you. And you can imagine that this does um, this didn't work. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, maybe a little bit for a little while, but generally it wasn't very successful and, and UE was generally devastated in, in this and, and, and eventually they signed the affidavits. And eventually they, they did. They signed the affidavits and they were allowed to be on the ballots. And they, that's the way they were able to save, you know, uh, that part of the union that stayed with, with the UE. Right. So this is, um, so it was a real loss. It was a loss to the labor movement that these unions got. Uh, bumped off, and of course, it was a big boon to the companies to not have oh, these yeah. militant unions um, demanding better pay and integration and equal pay for African Americans and and women. Uh, yeah, so obviously there were big incentives for companies to to try to undermine and and uh, destroy these unions. So, so that's just a little bit of a background on the history of the United Electrical Workers Union, and. Uh, we hope that gives you a little context for this interview. Uh, so without further ado, here's our interview with Terry Davis. Hello and welcome to the Smash Up Derby. This is uh, Sam Smucker, one of your co-hosts, and I'm here with Jonathan Kassam. The hey there, everyone, out in podcast land. So Jonathan is uh, dialing in here from Vermont. I'm in St. Louis and uh, this is the podcast that uh, we've put together on working class life and working class politics. And today our guest is Terry Davis, who's joining us from Chicago. Hi, everybody. I know Terry because Terry was uh, the international rep at the United Electrical Workers in Chicago when I was a young organizer there. So she was one of my mentors uh, as we tried to organize uh, factories along the Lake Michigan Chicago-Milwaukee corridor. But the story we want to tell today is that uh, during the 1970s, Terry and, uh, and her husband, Bob Koth, worked at the Stuart Warner Auto Plant in uh, the near northwest side of Chicago, where they successfully organized a multiracial coalition of workers to confront an, an abusive employer and, uh, and a corrupt union. Um, Terry went on to become a, 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 an organizer with the United Electrical Workers and retired in, the, in 2000, um, and we're super happy to have her join us today to talk with us about those days. And, and So Terry, I'll, I'll just jump in, and, and uh, I'm not going to give a lot of context here. Do you want to just talk with us about uh, Chicago in the early 70s and, and, and what was Stuart Warner? Sure, I would love to. In fact, um, I'm always delighted to talk about these memories. It was a very important part of my life. Um, back in the early 70s, um, 
I was looking at Chicago from the perspective of uh, young activists having been kind of brought up on the civil rights movement and the um, anti-war movement and being led to really wanting to make a difference for radical change in the country and um, was looking at the city of Chicago, which is like, was then and probably is today uh, one of the most segregated cities in the country uh, where people might work in the same place, but they went home to neighborhoods that were deeply, deeply segregated. It seemed to me and to my husband, Bob, that in order to really bring people together in a meaningful way on a multiracial basis, you really had to be thinking about the workplace. And so we were pretty naive. We didn't know much about unions, but we just decided to plunge in and see what we could do. So we um, wound up working at Stuart Warner on the north side. So what was Stuart Warner? Stuart Warner... um, was, uh, first of all, a really big plant. Uh, it was actually three plants, but the, the one was by far the biggest, and together they had 20, about 2,500 employees, and they were making auto parts, not cars, but parts for cars and parts for aftermarket, like uh, grease guns and things like that. They made speedometers, odometers, all kinds of gauges. So that was that was what it was. There were skilled workers uh, making parts for these parts, and then there were assembly lines putting them together. And where was the uh, factory located? Uh, at the corner of Diversity and Walcott, which is now covered with condos, which never ceases to seem very bizarre to me, but it was a big, huge tower of a place, uh, eight stories high and, um, you know, covering an entire, not one block, but probably several. It was populated by real mix of skilled white men running the uh, screw machines and um, doing the maintenance work and all that sort of thing, the skilled trades and then uh, some sort of scammy skilled people and running drill press machines and things like that. And then the basic assembly line people just putting stuff together. The, the biggest departments were the assembly departments, which were pretty much all women. It was, so the plant was very segregated by, by sex, but also the, the although the women were from every country, the uh, skilled white men, uh, you know, the white men held all the good jobs, and the more privileged jobs, even on the assembly line, were held by white women. So what, what it was a more privileged job. Well, they every every assembly line had a line captain, and there were inspectors. And those jobs were you were not, you were not chained to uh, production rate. You were able to do a little walking around and telling other people what to do, rather than just like boom, 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 working out trying to make your rate. 
floor that I worked on was the second floor, and that was like uh, something like three to four hundred women working on different lines. So each line had their own product. And I, I worked on a small line most of the time, which made something that we had no earthly reason what it was. We, we had no earthly idea what we were making, but um, nobody ever told us what what these gauges were for, but there was some kind of gauge. And then uh, another line would be making speedometers and so forth. How difficult was it to get hired, and what was that like? You know, it was super easy to get hired at Stuart Warner. They they just um, were constantly hiring, and people were going out the door too. But it was it was super easy to get hired, and and my only uh, problem was getting hired for the first shift because I had kids at home, so. I didn't want to be um, working nights. But just uh, walking in, I started out working on the sixth floor, and I was just shown to a ratty old beat-up chair, which was next to a very sweet woman by the name of Marie. So this is Marie, and she'll show you how to do the job. So I sat down, and uh, Marie showed me how to do the job, and then we worked side by side. She... Uh, told me so much about the history of the plant. She had been there for 30 years. She was an uh, uh, African-American woman from the South Side, and she had made that long commute up to Stuart Warner for 30 years. She told me the history of the union. The, the, it was interesting, too, and, and told me who to watch out for and who to... She, was, she really oriented me to the whole, the whole situation and, and showed me how to how to work efficiently so I could make my rate. So explain to us what that means. What is making your rate? Well, each little job that we did, and in that department, we did different jobs. We might work on three or four different jobs during the day, but each one had a production rate. And so it, it would be, you have to make 220 an hour, or you have to make 300 an hour, whatever, depending on how, how hard it was. You always had to work up to uh, to it. You couldn't just sit down and make the rate. It, they were hard to make, but after a while you could get there. That was sort of like, that's your struggle every day to, to work hard enough and fast enough early in the day that you could kind of skate a little bit in the afternoon. And, and so if you made rate, then you would get sort of the maximum amount of, of pay that you could get. No, no, it wasn't. Uh, no, we were we were paid a flat rate. Okay. But you just had to do it in order to survive. You had to make your rate. Yeah. Like what would what would happen to you if you didn't make rate? Well, I guess you would get a warning, and then you might get another warning, and you would eventually get fired. But um, I was fast. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> did they? And did what did they when they did they figure out like I mean did the bosses know that you were like going in fast in the morning and then slacking off in the afternoon? Of course, of and course, it, <laughs> of course they knew that. And they figure like, well, do they? I mean, did they like bug you like, why did you work that fast all day? Well, they they as long as you did what you were supposed to do, they weren't going to mess with you. But um, actually, I'm jumping ahead in the story, but we. 
we set about trying to organize, and after a while, we became, you know, um, spotlighted as organizers. And then they really set about seriously trying to fire me. And one of the ways they did it was to move me around every hour. They'd put me on a different job. You cannot make great like that. Right, right. You know, right. you just can't. And and they put me on jobs that I'd never been on. And then they'd come around and say. What's wrong with you? Why can't you, you know, get this done? Shake it up, shake it up. It was, that was, those were trying times because you you couldn't do that. So, in fact, um, oh, well, I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> okay, but did, did you, did they play with the rates? Did they increase the rates overall as well? Was that one of the, I mean. Well, there was a time when, they sent out time study people all over the plant and re-timed. I don't know if they did it all over the plant, but they did it in the assembly departments, and they re-timed the jobs. And lo and behold, to no one's surprise, they raised the rates, and they raised them a lot. And so people who had been, you know, found a comfortable groove in working suddenly were just just killing themselves trying to make the rates. We had a, this was when we were at a sort of a down period too in our organizing and we had just um, had a defeat and nobody could see any light at the end of the tunnel. There was, people were not, did not have the will to fight this. And I used to go around and say, the contract forbids them raising the rates like this. They can't do it. We have to fight back. And people would look at me as though I was speaking a language they didn't understand because they weren't ready to fight. So they knew it was wrong, but they weren't ready to fight. But, you know, they were mad, though. And then when we started to pick back up steam, they didn't any of them forget that. When you first started there, you talked about Maria. Were there other other people you remember? Um, did you have the ability to talk? Was it loud? What was it like in the... Yeah, it depended on where you were, but in my little department, there was like, um, at which they put me in a small area because they didn't want me to have too many people to talk to, but we had maybe um, 15 people. So out of that 15... Two of them were white women from the South, and one of them was from France, and four of them were black women from the South Side, and one was Mexican, and one was Puerto Rican, and one was Filipina, and one was Korean. And I've probably gone over 13, but they weren't, might not have all been there at the same time. But we had a, just a complete... Um, conglomeration of people. Other people would come and go onto the line, but we we developed a real esprit de corps, and we would we would sometimes have lunches where we'd all bring our favorite food and share it. They were they were very supportive of me when the when the boss was trying to fire me. They were one time. This is a story I was going to tell before. It was uh, one time when I was being moved from job to job and being screamed at. Um, and it just became so frustrating that, and I was doing soldering and I was like, I had this little solder iron and, and I, I just, I was so mad that I started to cry tears of rage. And 
tears would fall onto the, <laughs> the hot pot. metal and they go <laughs> and I was so humiliated at cr the fact that I was crying and then I looked up and a Kleenex appeared beside me and then I looked and a little peppermint appeared beside me and these women who you know they weren't going to speak up or anything but they just wanted to show support and it, that just made my day. <laughs> so what were the, what were the managers like? Did you have a manager for your, your department? Would they monitor you a lot? That sort of thing? Okay. The, the, the larger department that I was in, um, on the second floor, there was departments 21 and 22, which were kind of combined. And there was one foreman over, that entire department. And then each line had their line supervisors and they were considered management and were not members of the union. But the big boss, Roy, he was the, he was the foreman over everybody. And he was a guy with a sort of a sadistic nature and a real swagger. And he, he, he just shared the holy hell out of people. You know, he would, he would come down very hard on people but then he had his girlfriend. So, uh, like on maybe on a Friday afternoon, certain of the uh, uh, one or the other of his girlfriends would be sent, quote, to the eighth floor to work. And, <laughs> so we all She would disappear for the rest of the afternoon, and strangely enough, Roy also would disappear. So. That was part of the drama of Stuart Warner. Stuart Warner was never boring for one single day that I worked there. Mm -hmm. It was always some intrigue going on, <laughs> gossip, <laughs> drama. But um, our boss, Roy, caused more drama than his share. When you say he would come down on people, he would yell at people, he would... Um... Yeah, he'd, he'd yell and scream and he'd write them up and he'd fire them and... And did people ever speak back to him? Or was that just the uh, end of the game if you did that? People didn't. And not only that, I mean, people were afraid to do absolutely anything in his department. It was really difficult. And um, we would, uh, with our organizing, we would like, we would have a petition going around the plant and people all over the rest of the plant would sign it. But People in my department would, there was just six of us, I think, that would, out of all the hundreds, that would sign the petitions. That was in the early years. People lost their fear as we went forward. But in the early years, you know, I'd take it out lunchtime and say, who would like to sign this petition? And they'd all look at me. <laughs> so, so how, how did that change? How did that, uh, uh, what, what were the things that led people uh, sort of over time to, to speak up more? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it really had to happen from the outside in, in the case of those departments. We had to really show strength in other departments, and then we had to show strength plant-wide before mm. things would change there. There was a point at which, and we had just one shop steward for the whole department for like 300 people. And not only that, but she was completely best friends with management and wouldn't do anything for anybody and would turn people in and everything else. And so I, you know, some, some few of us would 
try to file grievances. And, and finally, she became so annoyed that she quit as steward. And so they had an election. And lo and behold, all these people that wouldn't look at me when I was asking them to sign petitions, they all voted for me for steward. And I, all of a sudden, I was the steward. <laughs> and that was like, whoa. <laughs> Everybody talked to me. Everybody talked to me. Everybody came to me with their problems, and, you know, it was a whole different. But that was that was after years, years of, you know, seeming frustration. That's a great segue. Let's, let's go back and, and go to the beginning where, where you came into the plant, and, and what did you and your husband think that you were going to do? Um, in terms of uh, organizing? Well, God only knows what we really thought at the time. I don't think we had any well-formed thoughts. Like I say, we did not have union experience, and we didn't really... Uh, and, and the situation was that uh, back in the 50s, UE had organized the plant, but um, I guess it, they actually organized in the 40s. But then during the McCarthy period, the uh, UE was expelled from the plant, and in its place came IBEW Local 1031. And Marie explained this to me when when I sat there, on, you know, in my early days up there. She said, we used to have a good union. They would fight for you. But then one day the stewards went out for lunch, and they wouldn't let him back in the plant. And then they held an election, but they didn't let us vote for the, that union. So we got the union that we've got now. And she said very wisely, she said, it's better to have a crappy union than to have no union at all. But it's not much better. And <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of anger at the union as well as at the company because they worked hand in glove. So we found that out really fast. And not only that, but our plant was in an amalgamated local which had over 10,000 members. Maybe when we started there, it might have been more like 12,000 members. 12,000 members in the local. And so we were just a minority, probably the biggest plant in the local, but uh, just a small fraction of the total membership. So you go to the union meetings and everybody who was there was just sort of like the in-group. And if anybody raised any questions or grievances, they would just be uh, shouted down. And they had guys in suits who seemed to be packing, standing around the walls. It was a kind of an intimidating situation. So um, people didn't go to the union meetings very much. When you first went into the shop, was that something that you all tried to do, to go to the union meetings? Well, we did go. We didn't go right away. We just wanted to get our feet wet first. And um, my husband, Bob, who was, he was more, at that time, he was definitely more of an organizer than I was. He, he felt like we should try to see who the actual leaders were in the plant. And he had a job. He got it into a skilled department so that 
his job involved going all over the plant in every department, and um, he got to talk to just about anybody he wanted to, and nobody would ever be able to say a thing to him because he was doing his work. He met some of the people who were the natural leaders in the plant, and they really, they were willing to sit down with us. So there were these two black stewards who were just uh, totally fed up with the union but wanted to represent the people and they were totally smart and totally committed and they were willing they were willing to talk to us so they said okay you've got to get some of these white guys from the scale departments to um, listen to you so that was our that was sort of like our first task like I said the assembly departments couldn't be organized at that time but but so Bob, went out and started just, he just made himself friendly with uh, some of these key guys in the skilled uh, screw machine departments. And it's sort of like, well, if we could do this and we could do this, then maybe we could get some more people elected stewards and light a little fire under the union. We weren't, we, we didn't have grandiose plans, but we did want to deal with the structure of the grievance procedure and and uh, try to try to find an effective way, you know, to to deal with grievances. So then we had a something sort of fell in our lap after we had been talking to these people and gotten them to come to some meetings. But can I ask you? Yeah. Something? Let me interrupt real quick. Oh yeah. I want to ask you about the how many um, of the skilled trade people were there. So how, what what kind of group? What kind of size group are we talking about? And I would say that um, if you took all the, well, the guys in the screw machine, some of them were black, some were Latino, but um, a lot of them were white. And, but then if you took maintenance, tool and die, the pattern shop, those are all like the skilled people that there was the majority were white men mm-hmm. and they lived in another world than the black women in assembly then in in assembly the it was predominantly black but also a lot of latinos and other nationalities miscellaneous and and some whites like i say the whites tend to have the more privileged positions well, there. And, and all the French people, of course. <laughs> there, were, there were only two French people on the whole planet, I think. Well, One was on our line. <laughs> well, her husband worked there, too, and he he had a skilled job. Okay. So she was along for the ride. I, you know, he was, he, he had some kind of a skilled position. I think he was in maintenance. I don't remember. Um, so the, but the, in terms of assembly, the vast majority of People in in the assembly departments were African American women. That was true, and then in some of the like in drill press, which is sort of like in between, it's like there was skill involved, and they were in the middle labor grades, and that tended to be, you know, kind of dirty and not that well paid, and that was predominantly black. That department was predominantly black men and some women, men and women. Mm-hmm. And so it was just, 
it was a hierarchy, but the biggest group was at the bottom and the smallest group was at the top. But I think you couldn't meaningfully, there were enough white people and they were enough isolated, except in terms of actual work. But I mean, socially, they were isolated from the black workers so that you really couldn't meaningfully organize just the black workers and have organized the plant. You needed the whites. And they also had more prestige and they had more mobility and they they just, they were important. Um, and then the Latinos were somewhere in between, closer to the bottom. How did you go about organizing or how did your husband go about organizing the um, skilled guys? Well, he sort of, I think what he did uh, with the couple of guys and one in particular in the in the screw machine department was like present a picture of what it would be like if if we could have more stewards elected. Because the stewards in the IBW, the stewards are appointed by the business manager, but you can get an election if you circulate a petition. So it's like, let's, Let's try it. Let's run for, why don't you run for steward? And he sort of half wanted to. And then these two black guys who he respected that were stewards said, come on, you know, do it. So, but before he decided to run for steward, we had uh, this, this thing which really kicked us off. The new contract had just been printed. And I think this, we had been there maybe a year, less than a year. I don't remember exactly when that came out, but they printed the contract and, it, and, and so people could see, and they remembered from when they voted on the contract how much their raise was supposed to be. So they were pitiful raises and the wages were pitiful. But in labor grade 10, we were supposed to get a raise of 18 cents or something. And then when the contract came out, it was only 17 what? And the whole plant just went up in flames. I mean, people were like, wait, we were supposed to get 18 cents. You know, this is only 17. How can that be? So everybody was talking about it. Nobody was doing anything about it. So we, and by we, by this time, it was these two black stewards, some people that, that followed them and who drank beer with them across the street. And then this white guy from Screw Machines and a, a conglomeration of 15 or 20 people, we all went to the union meeting and confronted the, you know, the big honcho of the union because they had overseen the writing up of the contract and the printing out. And, you know, they were party to it. So they were shocked that, I mean... The uh, head of the union at that time was a judge. Who was, he was a, a judge, part of the Democratic machine and part-time leader of 12,000 workers. You know, it was pretty much of a big joke. Anyway, um, so we cornered him after the meeting. We didn't speak up in the meeting. We cornered him afterwards in a room, you know. He said he would look into it and nothing happened. We didn't get our penny. But we were able to write it up afterwards and say, you know, people went and talked to Maurice Perlin at the union meeting and blah, blah, blah. So 
we we were started to put out a newsletter and the workers convinced us that rather than writing a big expose to the plant this is terrible this happened we we instead go and fight it and then write it up afterwards so we were able to win some things and then write about victories that was super important because we didn't understand, you know, you put out a leaflet to the plant, the company reads it too. So right. if they see that you're writing up about this problem, they'll just dig in their heels and you'll never get it. These, the two black stewards that I was talking about, these two guys, they said to Bob one time, they said, you know, Bob, you would be a really good organizer if you just put down that pencil. <laughs> and I, I never forgot that because... You know, we think of the power of the word, but they actually had, the bosses had the power, and we had to outsmart them. We couldn't just talk them down. We had to out-organize them. So that was a very valuable lesson. It, the word got around, you know, that this confrontation had taken place. And after that was when the white guy, Neil, decided to run for run for steward, and he did, and of course he won because his department liked him, and we started working on getting other people to circulate petitions and run for steward, so we got one of the um, guys in the, uh, they were the stock chaser department, a uh, Puerto Rican guy, he circulated a petition, and he won, and then, you know, we started to, and then a black woman from another department, not mine, but the one next to it on the second floor, she did the same thing, and she got elected. And so, you know, we were, we were off to the races at that point. That's the end of the first part of our interview with Terry Davis about her time working in the Stuart Warner plant in Chicago. We hope you enjoyed that. We're going to be posting part two very soon. Uh, In the meantime, you can check us out at smashuppodcast.com. Thanks for listening.